Welcome to This Is Your Afterlife, conversations with artists and activists about death and life. My name is Dave Marr. I am a comedian based in Chicago. I survived a coma eight years ago, and I've got questions for people like my guest today, Sean Morrow, senior writer for More Perfect Union, and the guy who posted the Eli Lilly tweet. If you're at all aware of the Twitter meltdown happening over on Twitter. Uh, the Since the Elon Musk takeover, if you are familiar with the tweet that was posted by a fake Eli Lilly account that said, we are excited to announce insulin is free now. Eli Lilly is one of the main insulin manufacturers. I know them very well as a type 1 diabetic. And boy, was that tweet the fucking good work, man. I saw that. that Twitter is... One of my uses for Twitter is connecting with other type 1 diabetics, and I saw that, and I was like, oh, we got someone in the trenches, you know? And then the next day, their stock tanked. Who knows if they're related? Sean doesn't take credit for that, but kind of cool. Kind of pretty fucking cool. So I figured Sean is a writer. Sean is a creative person. Sean did a fucking very cool thing. I'm curious who Sean is, and he tells me. In this episode. Now, this is an independent podcast. I do want to say that Patreon supporters make This Is Your Afterlife possible and get tons of great bonus episodes and full versions of my conversations with guests on the main feed. You can become an afterhead at patreon.com slash Dave Marr. That's the $5 level. You get all the bonus content. Or if you want to really up it, and be a Pigeon-level subscriber, that's $15, and you get a shout-out in every episode like this. Fred Vitawa, Susie Carroll, Katie Llewellyn, Kurt Chang, Debo, Shuba Singh, and John Lee. Thank you to them, and thank you to you for listening. If all you do is listen to this episode, that is fantastic. If you subscribe, if you rate the show, if you review it, all that stuff is is bonus. It's great. I'll also say a thing that I'm doing is I've I've set up a new newsletter. I don't know if I'm going to start it yet. I've decided that if I get 20 subscribers by this Friday, which is three days from when this episode publishes, that I will start the newsletter. The newsletter will be called Surrounded by Blankets, an independent podcast review. What I'm going to do is to counteract the narrative that we need big podcasting giants and celebrities and blockbuster shows to propel the industry forward. I think the indie shit is way more interesting, so I want to recommend you indie shit. I want to hear new stuff I haven't heard. I want to review it, take a critical eye, but with the interest of analyzing creative process and lifting up the collective uh, tide level, is that right? The the sea level of folks who are making work in their bedrooms, like I am. So if you want to subscribe to that newsletter, it's blankets.substack.com. You got three days to get at, at the moment, it's 15 more subscribers. This is not a threat. This is not uh, anything like that. I just have a lot of ideas that are ultimately about me procrastinating things, and that might be what this is. So I'm, I'm putting it in the universe's hands. I'm saying it on the podcast here. 
if you click that link in the show notes. This is the one episode, unless I guess it it takes off. But this might be the only episode with the link to Surrounded by Blankets in the show notes. So if you want to sign up for that, you can click on that. That is all about that. So find out more about Sean in the show notes. And now we've we've got it. Well, you're going to hear my conversation with Sean Morrow. I grab your whip and take it back to Chi-Town. When I'm in Chi-Town, I treat it like it's... Paint your hell. Huh, that's a really good... That's a really good question. Um, Thank you. I hate to cite something that already exists, but if you think about like the play uh, No Exit, where there's that line like hell is other people, mm-hmm. I think like as an angsty teen who worked in customer service, I always pers- at first thought that to mean like people are annoying, ha ha ha. But then I realized as an adult, it's not about people being annoying. It's about being perceived. It's about the the need that other people are looking at you and you need to Hell is having something that uh, hell is having to keep up an image almost. I realized that's what that actually is about, um, which was interesting to me. And so I think something that would be, uh, you know, a hell to me is like thinking about how uh, in my past I might have hurt people or in my past I might have uh, being forced to think like contemplate and think about those things constantly um, is kind of what what I think of. Um, and then, then that makes me think of like the, the Sartre or Sartre, or I, I don't speak French, right. uh, saying, you know, hell is other people and how in the different ways to interpret that over time is like, hell isn't an annoying customer at work. Hell is the very act of not being on your own of being perceived. Sure. Is there a concrete image that attaches to that for you? Mm. Like a specific moment of perception or way in which you didn't like to be perceived? There's almost like a um, like a moment of uh, getting a text message from someone explaining that you you know you know hurt them emotionally or something or how your behavior was never you know like wrong wrong but was finding out that your behavior was uh, you know hurt somebody's feelings or something like that. I say feelings and I don't think feelings is the right word, um, but that moment you find out that something that you did made someone feel not good is 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 hell to me be it um, like ghosting somebody, something along those lines, like just something along those lines or not respecting somebody's time or, or not respecting, uh, you know, just, yeah, the, the feeling of realizing that I think is something that always makes me deeply upset. Have you ghosted people without realizing it? Um, maybe, yeah, I guess like, you know, you kind of think it's mutual and then it's like, you weren't texting me either. And apparently they were waiting, you know, that kind of stuff, like, you know, right. early 20s stuff, stuff sure, that I've long... Sure, sure grown out of um and that's just an example or like uh accidentally leading someone on by uh you know just not um fully thinking about somebody's feelings and saying like just keep continuing to cancel or reschedule when you don't want to actually do it at all and then realizing wait i just need to tell this people that person i don't want to hang out and that kind of stuff hurts people and it's not only you know uh, dating type relationships and in friendships or you know accidentally ignoring someone in other ways um it just hurts to find out that you hurt somebody and it sounds like these are not because I was wondering if it would be more hellish to have it be behavior that someone's confronting you about, but you actually stand by. You're like, well, I actually don't think anything's wrong. And somehow maybe mm. that's more hellish versus behavior that you're immediately, it sounds like, contrite for. And someone saying, hey, you did this. And you just, it sounds like that sort of sinking feeling of like, oh, no, 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 no. Yeah, I guess as I've gotten older, more often if someone says, hey, you did this, I'm like way more open to it than I would have <laughs> yeah. when I was younger. I'm almost right. always like, 
oh yeah, that maybe was wrong. <laughs> like maybe sometimes a silly little etiquette thing. I'll, 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 I'll dig my heels in. I'm also way more likely to dig my heels in with a close friend or a close family member than I am yeah. to someone I don't know that well. I think most people are like how, like, you know, uh, I'm sure your, 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 your best friend annoys you more than strangers do. Or a lot of people have their, their shortest tempers with their mothers. I feel like that's just a common thing for, for, yeah. for like men specifically, like mm-hmm. your, your mom's going to annoy you way easier than other people. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think most of the time now, like when I do something, I try to a hundred percent see from the, those perspective, but I wasn't like that when I was younger. So what do you hope happens when you die? To be honest, I feel like the, uh, true nothingness is the, the best option because if something's happening after you die, I feel like it's either eternity or nothing. I don't think there's any kind of hanging out around for a couple hundred years. You know what I mean? Okay. Why? Hmm, that's a good question. Yeah. I guess it's kind of like if you're going based on, uh, you know, our culture and existing things in our culture and our fiction and mythology, you can think of like a ghost that has to settle its, you know, settle its problems and then it'll get to move on. And then is, is that nothingness? Um, and I, I'm sure within most religions, the underlife, the afterlife is generally um, eternal, unless you look at like Buddhism or the, the goal in Buddhism, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm sure you've read all this stuff, is eventually to achieve not reincarnating anymore. Right. Is that is that uh, accurate to a degree? Well, I appreciate you assuming I've read all this stuff when this is really <laughs> born of desperation and curiosity on my part. But yeah. I have heard recently from a Buddhist that, yeah, there is some level, I think, depending on the strain, uh, mm. she's a Tibetan Buddhist that where it is. Yeah, there's a level where you don't go back. But I think it's a choice, maybe. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that's that sounds and the, yeah. Right. But you prefer the nothingness to eternity. Yeah. I think like that's kind of uh how I operate in my life is presuming that that's what it is. And it's I think that there's something comforting to that. There's something comforting to that that uh that ending of nothingness and comforting to death in uh, I don't want to say a nihilistic way, but almost a nihilistic way thinking similarly on a long scale to like the fact that the heat death of the universe will happen one day is almost comforting that it's like, you know, things don't really matter that much because in the grand scale of things, nothing will exist. Um, so I think that's why like a, a, a void is, is, is most uh, avoid a void of nothingness is the most comforting to me because eternity of anything else seems unbearable. Wait, why does eternity seem unbearable? <sighs> hmm. That's a good question. I guess the uh, I guess because if it's eternity, you never have the option to end it. You never have the option to go away from it. In the same way, where you know, I wouldn't consider myself as someone who has like suicidal ideation, but to me, there's a comfort in the fact that suicide exists. Because if your life ever gets really that bad, it's always there. It's oh, you, you can't undo it once you've done it. Yeah, but it is always there. Um, if you really screw things up, if things really go terribly, like it's always there for you, unless you're like in, you know, uh, a, a psychiatric institution where they're stopping you, um, or a prison where they're stopping you, unless you're Jeffrey Epstein. Um, yeah, I think there's kind of a comfort in the ability to end things. There's a comfort in always having that nascent ability to end things. But is that comfort because, well, you said because if things ever get that bad. What if the eternity mm-hmm. is is just infinitely better um, than than this? 
some kind of like some kind of perfect bliss that you that you're going through for or maybe forever. not even a perfect bliss something that's like it could be it could be slightly imperfect you know because i feel like once we're talking about perfect bliss we get to boredom very quickly yeah. but something that still involves some challenge some growth something there um yeah yeah, yeah i guess there is something to uh, like a, a, a disappointment that a lot of people feel, you know, if you grow up on like science fiction and fantasy and slowly realizing that this is it, this is all that there is. Mm-hmm. There is no, you're never going to get pulled to go to, you know, wizard school or whatever, just like you'll never get pulled to go onto some like interdimensional intergalactic adventure. Um, and I think there is something to maybe if, if ha- having an experience, uh, you know, something that would remind me of like doing psychedelics or something, uh, an experience of like a complete openness to, something completely different than this yeah i could i could see i could see you know being able to vibe with that okay but you find it so 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 the thing that's comforting about the nothingness to you is um you talked about things being inconsequential so it's the it, mm-hmm. it sounds like it's a little bit of the like letting up of the pressure of having to take things so seriously yeah i i think so and then that brings up back into like the concept of being perceived is like it's almost like what I I'm willing to let go is my ego in the, you know, true Freudian sense, not ego is in like someone that likes themselves a lot, but the true sense of self is something that I don't feel that much of a strong attachment to. And I'm willing to get, get, get rid of is the sense of like, this is me. And that's part of what I, I'm, I'm, I'm look, I'm willing and happy to shed and don't need to be eternal. Okay. So that doesn't freak you out. The concept of like the death of the ego or the loss of quote unquote me does not freak me out at all. No, like almost zero. Um, it's taken me a while to get to that point. I used to think about death all the time, but the concept of uh, of a loss of, of myself is not something that I'm scared of. How did you get to the point of not freaking out about it? Um, I don't want to, you know, go full like Joe Rogany on this and talk about sure. psychedelics all the time, but <laughs> I d- actually, it was actually from doing purely pure legal uh, prescribed ketamine from one of those sketchy companies that sells it on Instagram, not even like my real doctor. It was like during pandemic, they just send it to you in the mail with a blindfold and a playlist of music that you listen to. What? Um, and yep. Yeah. It's I honestly like it did help me, but I don't think it should exist. It's like a little <laughs> bit too easy. And I did it. Uh, I think I did two or three full runs of it where you do it four times and I came out of that not really. I came out of that not really worrying about uh, not really worrying about death. Why did it feel like you confronted something, or was it just like the whatever the feeling you had in it, you were able to continue to draw on? Um, I, it's, to be honest, I don't remember the actual like uh, quote unquote trip that the trips that well. Yeah. I remember it being a complete detachment from reality in the sense of like you know I've done mushrooms or whatever uh, recreationally. And that wasn't the same complete detachment of reality. It's an alteration of reality. This was like I was in a different place, uh, but it was something that felt familiar. And I don't know if it would if it was because uh, I don't uh, you know have any kind of spiritualism to ketamine. Like I know I totally respect people having spiritualism, psychedelics, but as if I was seeing where you were from before you're born and after you die. But it really did feel like uh, the complete separation from my ego. And I think that is scientifically kind of what it does is it separates the different parts of your. Uh, it's quiet some parts of your brain and it was felt like a complete quieting of the, of the, of the ego. And again, I'm not a psychologist, so I'm probably not using these words hundred percent correctly, but it felt like a complete quieting of that. And I felt completely comfortable with it. Mm-hmm.
What about funeral planning? Do you have concrete thoughts there? Yeah, I mean, like, this sounds like my joke answer, but it actually is kind of my real answer is like, if I think about dying at a young age, I'm like, oh, man, I don't want all my friends to have to go worry about getting their suit dry cleaned and having to deal with all this <laughs> shit. You know what I mean? Like, because like, yeah. I think about that with my friends, like, I've got some, you know, I've had friends that are like going through trouble. And uh, I've had a kind of um, almost uh, practical issue of like a thought like, oh, great, I'm gonna need to get my suit dry cleaned. <laughs> like, yeah. Like it's just something that pops into my mind, and then that's when I realize, oh shit, that's how that that's part of my brain realizing how serious this is that the other part of my brain's ignoring, is like it's kind of acknowledging that some something's a real possibility when my, the rest of me isn't acknowledging it. Um, and it's it's not. I don't think of it as cold even. I think of it as like, oh, you know, the emotional part of my brain wasn't willing to admit this, but the logical part of my brain that's there for getting tasks was ready to admit this. But that's kind of how I think about it. Like I don't think about looking back at my like I. I'm not someone who feels like I would feel the need to watch my funeral or anything like that. Um, it's just kind of like, I, I, I doesn't, I, I don't care. Like I, I'm fine with just like, you know, quote, like uh, quote, Frank Reynolds and always sunny, just throw me in the trash kind of stuff. You know what I mean? But then sure. I, I realize it is, it isn't, it isn't for you, obviously it's for other people. It's for your family. And yeah. So your, your request would be for people to interrupt their lives as minimally as possible basically yeah like i yeah if you're if you like i don't want you to fly in or something like that uh or anything like that it's like yeah keep keep it keep it cool keep it easy you know uh donate some money to charity don't buy flowers okay no flowers no dress code it sounds like no dress code yeah no yeah. is there a? it sounds like throw you in the ground are we talking a box are we talking a Oh, I cre- cremation's fine, but then it's like that's a thing that someone has to have in their house. You know mm-hmm, what I mean? It's like mm-hmm. I don't have like a. I'm not. Like, if, I'm, if we're talking about like this happening in the near future, I guess like it would go to like my parents. But it's like once my parents are gone, at the moment I'm not married, I don't have any kids. Like who even gets that? So it's kind of like it, it's kind of uh, it makes you really think about your attachments because it's who's going to be left to to deal with all this random random bullshit. Right, and if it's someone who can't even be bothered to press a suit. What are they going to yeah. do with your fucking ashes? <laughs> exactly. The prompt is, I would like for you to relive one memory. And this is based on a concept from my most recent, my second one-man show, where it's set in the afterlife. And one of the features of this afterlife is that everyone gets to fully drop down into and relive one memory. But you only can choose one. It's not like your other memories are wiped. It's just like this one exists as almost like a room where you can pop into and out of whenever you want. If that yeah. were the case, what memory would you choose? That's a, that's that's good. Um, I honestly kind of have a, a a terrible memory, so I have trouble, you know, looking back and cataloging my life like a lot of people I feel like are able to. Um, but something I jump to is almost kind of like uh, not selfish, but. When I was working on a, sh- my, a show at my old job, I, I think I mentioned this to you, the show about different ways the world could end. This was 2018. We were doing an episode about the concept of a super volcano exploding. Uh, so we went to Yellowstone and we had enough money in our budget to fly in a helicopter over Yellowstone for like two hours, like flying over Yellowstone filming. Um, 
And I, that is always a very amazing memory to me because it was, a, I was working with this group of people I really liked. So we were going around everywhere, but it's not, it's not, again, why I might say it's selfish is because it's not about those people. It felt like an accomplishment that I felt that I had earned going up in a helicopter over Yellowstone just by making quality things for so long. Yeah. And then it was also just so incredibly beautiful and so insane. Like it, it was one of the few times when I had like a true awe at nature was like uh, being able to fly in this helicopter over Yellowstone, going over that, you know, that colorful uh, sulfur pond uh, that, that the pilot we were working with was like doing dangerous stuff. He probably shouldn't have been doing um, <laughs> because he liked us. And like he flew down past like a herd of, I want to say gazelles, but I don't think there's gazelles here. Some kind of that could like, you know, four legged large deer like thing with horns that was big and like startled them. So like we were flying in the helicopter with these gazelles running and it just really gave me an appreciation for how beautiful the world was seeing this um, in a way where it's like, I think a couple days later, I, we saw we went to Mount Rushmore just for fun. And I was like, this is boring and underwhelming. This is stupid. Yeah. They should have left the mountain. But Yellowstone was like, holy shit, this is this is amazing. This is such a such natural beauty um, and so much. And there's just so much to look at. Like, why watch TV when you could do this? Um, and it's also felt like a privilege because it's very, you know, probably like maybe like, you know, 10, 15,000 people have gotten to fly in a helicopter over Yellowstone or something like that. Maybe a couple hundred thousand or something. I don't know. Uh, so it felt like something that not a lot of people have done and something that I had earned. Um, so, it, yeah, that's a really special moment for me. Were you all capturing footage or was this just like a separate trip? We were filming. Yeah, we were filming okay. out the window. And then like the only as I, you know, it was I was with the director and like the director of photography. And the only reason I went up there was literally to record like two lines of me saying like, we're at Yellowstone. I'm in a helicopter. I don't even remember what the lines were. Um, otherwise, I was not needed up there. I was just the host. I was the host and the writer. They didn't need me up there. So I, I, I had a sense of pride and accomplishment. And I got to go in a helicopter to say two words. Because so they I wanted the like bad audio quality. Yeah, we used. Yeah, it was like just for, really just for the moment. Uh, yeah, we had uh, we got we got the guy to send us the recording of like when you wear the headset and like, oh the little that's going through. Thing. So we got the actual. I think we got the actual audio from the intercom. I don't really remember, but that's okay. the whole point of that is to kind of cut out the helicopter sure, sounds. Sure, sure. So sure. It, it did sound bad, but it was like. Uh, it wasn't important context or anything. It wasn't important information. It was like, yeah. uh, you know, a throw to commercial not, or, you know, throw to ad or, you know, uh, an introduction line. Um, so, yeah, getting to get, getting to do that is was really great to me. Um, and I feel selfish picking that almost because, you know, I'm sure you get a lot of people saying like the first time they held their child in their hand or whatever um, and that kind of stuff. But uh, that was a moment where I was like, I feel like I I feel like I earned this. I feel like I've reached a, a peak in or something. Yeah. It's very so it's very interesting to hear you talk about what your assumptions are of what other people have said mm -hmm. and what you think I've read because it squares very neatly with this hell of being perceived where you're very yeah. aware of where your answer fits in the context of potential other answers but I think this sounds great I think I think this sounds like a you know it's like upfront planet earth basically yeah it's, absolutely uh, um it's a very practical one too because i feel like i'd have a lot of stuff to look at you know what i mean like i could yeah i could fly and notice different things because totally. you have such a wide view so it's almost was there also anything a in your body at the time that felt is it mostly a visual memory or do you remember other physical sensations 
Um, I guess I remember a slight, like uh, uh, a little bit of fear of heights being up there, but it all felt very safe. Um, and like the vibrations of the helicopter. But yeah, there's no specific physical feeling that I can really put a finger on and remember. Well, those are two. Yeah, that's that's a good point. Those are two. <laughs> yeah. Tell me more about about earning it. Like it, it sounds like that's a big sort of uh, background component to this. Yeah, um, I guess I, you know, uh, you know, since I was a kid, I always wanted to be a writer, and it was um, as with any anyone in any creative field, you kind of realize like I want to do this. It might not happen the way I want it to happen. I might not go get a job writing for you know like creating a sitcom even when I'm when I'm 19 or when I'm 21 years old. Uh, but I want to use this this skill and thing I enjoy doing as my way to support myself. Um, and when I was kind of young, I got a job at a, you know, a media startup that was really nothing uh, at the time. Um, now this, and, you know, where there was like, you know, 20, 20 people there maybe. And um, just by like thinking of ways to make internet content. And when, when the whole concept of like the news video was still on the rise, uh, it was interesting, like playing around with this format having things go super viral. Um, and then I pitched this idea for a show, a science show of different ways the world could end. And my company sold it to Facebook. Like Facebook owned it as, as if they were a network, Facebook Watch. Um, so it was like my show and like Red Table Talk, the one with like David Pick and Smith. Yeah. And like Tom Brady's show. Um, yeah, which was very funny. Uh, yeah, when they canceled it, they actually said, we're looking for things more like Red Table Talk. And I'm like, well, what do you want me to do? Um, so and it was like, oh, this was all of this money went into, which was also kind of a stressful thing. All of this money and this big business deal went into an idea I had, and the idea of like of my like basically investing in a, li- a little bit like investing in my personality because it's like yeah. you know it's I mean it is it is a unique idea, but it's also like very uh, much based on having a a good host. Um, so it felt like I had, you know, really built something. Like I had built built a built a show. Uh, it was a web show, it wasn't a TV show, but it was something that I I built and was very satisfied by having built it. It's cool that you're. It sounds like throughout that process, you were really in touch with the origin of the thing. Because I'm imagining mm-hmm. myself as a person who can adjust very quickly to situations mm-hmm. for positive and often for negative. Um, and I can imagine pitching that show and it becoming a job really quickly and not constantly remembering the sort of pride of, oh, this came from something, this was like in my head and now it's so many people's jobs. So it sounds like a key to, you know, humility, gratitude, other generally positive traits that you were able to stay connected to that sort of seed of the idea yeah i i I kept uh with it to a degree um i but i it also this is not a topic change but just kind of thought on that is like it led to me thinking that i got to do all these things like i said i got to fly in a helicopter over yellowstone which like you know i don't want to go down this road right now but how a lot of creative jobs and cool jobs exploit people is with the you get to do this yeah or this is a privilege totally um and i it's something i don't think about anymore like i feel way more detached from my work in a positive way i care about my work i really do but i if i have a video bomb or something it doesn't make me depressed for a week like it used to at that job um or something like that i think that was partially pandemic did that helped me with that um 
but yeah, it was work. Like it was very hard work and it had to be good. And it was like, if you get, when you have a creative job and you get writer's block and you're on a salary, like that's the same as like, as if you're doing like real labor and you have an injury or something, you know, right. it's like, you, except with an injury, you get workers comp, uh, but it's like, you can't accomplish the task. You can't accomplish the thing that you need to do to pay your rent and put food on the table. Um, and that, that did definitely give me a lot of anxiety there. I think I answered your question. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It sounds like the, you know, between the, the ketamine and the letting go the, this changing relationship to work, it sounds like the pandemic was, uh, helpful for you in some yeah. pretty key ways. Much like anyone else. I had some dark times, yeah, you know, like there was some pretty dark times at the beginning, like where I wasn't, I was having trouble getting my work done. Uh, my, you know, my my job almost wanted to get rid of me because I wasn't doing things, but I bounced back. Um, when I was like hosting, uh, when I was hosting a podcast, uh, it was it was it was a difficult time, and I feel like a lot of people have pandemic wise with regards to looking at pandemic as trauma. If you had the you know uh, the privilege of having like a nice work from home job that whole time, you kind of think you're not allowed to be traumatized by it, or if you didn't lose anybody. But then I think back to it, and it's like I would sometimes go for a walk when I I was really isolated, like I was getting to a bad point where I wasn't leaving the house. But when I did, there's a uh, all those viral pictures of the 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 refrigerated truck being full of bodies is like yeah. two blocks from my apartment. It's like, oh, I saw a truck full of bodies wow. when I was like walking around smoking a joint. And I think back on that, not as a funny memory, but almost as like a story memory. I'm like, no, that's fucked up. And that's something you should, one should deal with. And I feel like a lot of people didn't, uh, a lot of people who were privileged enough to not lose anybody, to not get super sick and could work from home, don't feel like they're allowed to be traumatized by the pandemic. But absolutely, you should be allowed and you should be able to work through that. Yeah. So when you think about the concept of earning it with this Yellowstone helicopter ride, mm -hmm. is that complicated now by your, uh, you know, feelings of not, not overly prostrating yourself to the employer? Are you like, are you like, I'm, I'm trying to think, cause it sounds like at the time you're like, yeah. Oh my God, this is such an amazing perk of the job. And now you would be like, well, uh, not to take it for granted that it's like, yeah. I deserve this or something, but it's, I created this thing. This is a thing that happened. It doesn't make me sycophantic to my employer for some reason. I don't know. Does that complicate the memory in any way? No, that, that, hmm, that's a good question. Uh, thank you. I don't think it, it does a little bit, but it is kind of like, I would still think of it as a fun opportunity because not everyone gets to, gets to do that. Um, it, I might, if it was on a weekend, I might say, oh, since this is on the weekend, now I get to take Tuesday off. And I wouldn't have done that back then. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. Um, totally. It was, yeah, even like, I even thinking of it in terms of like very um, non uh, high level thought of just labor, like it was work I was doing. It wasn't a fun thing I was getting to do. And it was, but it was fun. But it's like, I should remember if I was working hourly, I fucking count that, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Even though I was working salary. But it's like, yeah. Uh, and that's the thing with a lot of people with good jobs is they're willing to work like these crazy hours and be in touch all the time because you have a cool job. And it's like, no, just because your job's cool. And the problem is there's lots of people who are willing to, willing to, you know, be, uh, you know, completely bow down for the cool job. And until we all kind of agree not to completely bow down, you're going to kind of have to a little bit, but right. Yeah. Do you think of like thinking of it as a job before thinking of it as cool? Yeah. I think that's, that's, that's a big, big part of it. Um, like you're creating something sellable, you're doing labor. I mean, in my current job, we're a, you know, pro labor organization. Uh, so, you know, the, you know, management is very good about a lot of this stuff. 
Um, but then it also there also comes the idea of like doing it for the, doing it for the the cause because we're yeah. you know a nonprofit, um, which I think is the thing that uh, and that really isn't that in my organization, but it's something I hear from a lot of nonprofits. Like, oh yeah, you you have to do it for the cause. You don't ask for a raise. You're doing it for the cause, which again my organization doesn't do. But I hear about that from, from friends and nonprofits or people who work on political campaigns. Um, and that's what's complicated about something like unionizing a political campaign. It's like are we going to really slow down this momentum and risk the other person losing because we want a union, but also campaign workers are overworked. Yeah. 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 It, it sounds like it could, if the other people in the helicopter ride were not there, if it were just you going sort of solo sitting in the seat you sat in and magically the helicopter's yeah. going, it would be about the same for you. It's not like, and I was with my best friend and we talked about this forever. Yeah. Yeah. I was with good people, but it's not about them. It's like all people I liked and could always talk to. And one of my like closest friends was there actually. Um, but it wasn't really about that. Um, but then you, you, when you mentioned being alone, there is the idea of when you see something like that, uh, then, you know, the need to just enjoy it. And this goes back into being perceived as opposed to like the, say you don't have internet and you can't post it on Instagram or whatever. Mm-hmm. Is is it as good? And it's like, yes, obviously it's as good, but it takes time to be able to truly still experience things. And like for a lot of people these this age and not worry about sharing it or something like that is something I'm thinking about. Because like, you know, I couldn't, if I'm in the afterlife. It's not like I'm posting on Instagram. Uh, and it's just a matter of like, oh, just truly sitting and enjoying it for yourself. Um, especially something like a natural beauty or something where, you know, I, I'm in a city 95% of the time. So I very rarely get to see far away. You know what I mean? And yeah, even that's true of people yeah. even in the suburbs. Like you very rarely get to see far away. Um, that, 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 and you mentioned physical sensations, that feeling in your stomach and chest, just of looking far away. Um, and just being able to truly enjoy that all the time as and, and alone and not sharing it. Alone and not sharing it is... Right. It, 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 you're you're not talking about emotionally not sharing it. You're saying alone and not sharing it in the sense of being fully present with it. Yeah. 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 Being fully present and just enjoying it for yourself and not even thinking about sharing it. Um, yeah. And I guess there is like, it's almost like a stupid, like uh boomer meme of like, if you did something and didn't post it, did it ever really happen or whatever? Yeah, yeah, and it's yeah. like, there there is a, unfortunately a truth to that. Uh, in the way that we've forcibly wired our brains that I, I I personally like have been trying to get out of, like get move away from that feeling of like, uh, it's something I consciously think about doing is like move away from the, it did it, it did it ever really happen if you didn't post it kind of thing. What's your coma? And this mm-hmm. is where I explained to you that I was in the coma for a month and for me, it wasn't a straight line, but that did serve as a moment of transformation. Uh, the easiest thing to point to is like, I got sober after that. So that's one big thing that changed. But what is a moment, big or small, for you? Yeah. That where you can very clearly point to, like, before I was this version of Sean and after I'm this version. Yeah, I think we've kind of hinted at this this whole time, but honestly, uh, the pandemic, I know it's a long ongoing moment that we're still living in, but it's hard for me to put my finger on exactly when these things happened. But it was during the pandemic that, say, in the workplace, I stopped worrying about like, this person got this opportunity and I didn't get it and being like angry about that and being like political, being very like, um, 
Pete Campbell, Mad Manny kind of behavior. Um, That is a way I feel like I used to behave and I don't behave anymore. And to me, work now is just about coming in, doing good, the best work you can. And and you're not worried about other people. You're not worried about competition. You're not worried about who gets something or who makes more than you or whatever. Um, It's something that happened to me slowly over pandemic. Um, I think it was a combination of going into a deep, going into a pretty bad depression, coming out of it, uh, doing, doing the ketamine. And just spending a lot of time like alone and reflecting. Um, and I, I, specific yeah. moments of reflection where you're like, oh, I remember seeing this. I remember hearing this. I remember reading this. I remember this walk when I had this realization or something like that, that like maybe aren't the moment, but are kind of points along the way. I kind of narratively wish there was, but it really sure. did feel like a long drawn out kind of thing where I was just changing over time rather than like a distinct moment. Um, and the way my memory works is weird. Like I have trouble uh, being introspective memory wise. For example, like if I'm trying like a new antidepressant thinking like, oh, is it working or not? I don't remember how my brain was two weeks ago. Mm-hmm, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, like, cause I don't journal or anything like that. Um, and I, yeah, I guess I used to read a lot more and I think a lot, I, I, my attention span has been destroyed in the pandemic. So I like, you know, don't read as much as I used to. So there's no like moment of reading. But it really did was just kind of like a gradual, I'm, st- I'm stumbling through life, like bouncing back and forth and picking up little changes as I go along. And then, oh, when I come out of this, I'm like, just very different, like a gradient, almost a gradient rather than a, like a grid. Yeah. Is there, was this something before the pandemic where you were like, oh, I have this comparative mindset. I really want to get rid of it. Or did it fully just pop out to you at the, during the pandemic? I think one of the first times I realized how problematic it was, I used that P. Campbell reference. And I'm not even a huge Madman guy. Like, Madman's fine. But it was seeing this weaselly dude, Pete Campbell, and actually being like, oh, I feel like I behave that way. And you're not <laughs> supposed to like this guy. So maybe I should change. And I think that was pre-pandemic that I first watched that. When, um, it's, I, I feel like a lot of people feel this way too, but it's uh, seeing negative parts of yourself in a television character and realizing it's negative. Uh, that's happened to me with Pete Campbell and it's happened to me with uh, Bojack Horseman, like watching it and having like the, <laughs> okay. oh, there's like, there's negative things this person does. That's negative. I, I feel like I do that. I should change that about myself. Um, so really like, you know, I don't think I even finished Mad Men, to be honest. I don't think I watched like the last two or three seasons. <laughs> just but enough I just remember, to like, start the self-improvement process. Just enough to start the self-improvement process from how much of a, a dickwad Pete Campbell is. Sure. Did the depression help in in what way because you said it was going through the depression that helped um make this change so was it i I know for me when a depression helps me in that way it's often like getting so sick of something that it's finally the thing that i'm working on so it's like was was this mindset part of what was causing the depression or was there some other way in which the depression sort of cleansed you of that Mm, that's yeah huh i honestly just feel like i'm not introspective enough to answer that question um i think it was like the depression kind of like like truly don't think i'm introspective enough to answer that question like it's just like i it's almost like looking uh you know sometimes like if there's a problem with your computer and you're and then you don't do anything differently and then it starts working again it really did feel like that like it was like i had these problems and i didn't do much differently and then i felt uh better um like almost a silly example is I made a stupid TikTok about social anxiety once. It was about how 
when I was in middle school, I used to be too shy. If I forgot a pencil, I'd be too shy to ask for one. So I would instead ask to go to the bathroom and look in the halls until I found a pencil on the floor. Um, and it like blew up with people that were identifying with that. People were like, I do that. And then I had kids like, uh, like children, like, like, you know, 15 year olds messaging me on TikTok, like, Hey, I noticed you're older and I struggle with this now. What did you do? Like, how'd you get through it? I didn't respond to any of these. Cause that's like a, a bucket of worms. I don't want to open is yeah. like talking to children on this app. So I didn't, but I just looked at these messages. I even got messages from parents saying that their kids are struggling with this. And they're like, how'd you get through this? How'd you fix it? I'm like, I don't fucking know. Yeah. <laughs> I just yeah. like one day I just learned how to talk to people better. And I still have social anxiety. Like, you know, I, I'm. I probably still wouldn't go to a part like a, a party where I only know one person, you know, like someone's birthday party where you don't know their friends. Like mm-hmm. I probably still wouldn't go to that. I'd maybe pop in. Um, but like, yeah, the social anxiety is just way better. It just gets like, sometimes you just, you know, learn. You just, it takes, there's no moment. There's no lesson to be taught. It's just like you slowly got better. Yeah. yeah. I just relate. I relate to, because I think I was aware of it for, I mean, probably for a much longer time. I'm, I also struggle with, I am at least introspective enough to think of these questions. Yeah. But, um, but I do also struggle with like having that same realization that you've had 15 times before and thinking it's the first time. And then someone telling you, like, no, this is, we were in seventh grade and you, you had that thought. Uh, Yeah. God damn it. You know, but, I am, but before the pandemic, for at least a couple of years, I, I was feeling comparison like super, super hard. Um, and I think a lot of it had to do with um, to having successful friends um, mm-hmm. in, in very traditional ways where I had looked to. I'm sure there's similar things in journalism. You know, it's like, I don't know, working for one of the big new – actually, that's probably a good comparison because – it sounds like your politics are not – it sounds like you would have to do some internal tweaking to work at, say, even like the New York Times, maybe. Right. I'm never trying to do that. That's not right, my goal. Like, right. Yeah. But nonetheless, that is still such a brass ring in yeah. the industry that it's hard not to be like, oh, so-and-so, you know, in this in this metaphor, SNL is the New York Times. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. Or so, getting a manager or something like that. Yeah, yeah exactly. Comedy. Yeah. Exactly. And so – um, but it just became aware to, you become aware of your limitations. You become aware of like, there's only so much that I can control here. So how yeah. am I going to be happy? How, how yeah. How am I going to live a, a pleasant life? Um, yeah. and so being very aware of that and the, and the pandemic really did, um, help break apart some of those feelings but i'm in a place right now where it i i guess just those feelings either they just have really deep roots or they refuse to die or they keep just popping mm-hmm. back up sometimes so it is one of those things where you really it's so tough to think of when you're in the midst of that gradient gradual transformation it is really hard to use specific tools because if one of those specific tools worked, it almost would create the epiphany that breaks the chain and completely changes your behavior. But without that, you're still, you're just like aware that you're in the midst of things, but you haven't completed 
the feeling of you're like, I know I'm getting there, but I'm not there yet. And this in-between time is very uncomfortable. Yeah, no, I, yeah. It's like, you still have that. I don't want to say uh jealousy, but it's a comparison of like, Oh, should I have done something different to be there? Yeah. Are they truly better than me? Yeah, no, I think that that's completely natural. And everyone feels that. And I, I still definitely feel that in a way. Um, and it's also like I used to want to be in like, or I still do want to like go into comedy. Like I did UCB or whatever, and I yeah, thought of yeah. that as like a possible career path. And then I look at people who didn't leave, you know, still focus on that that are doing very well. I'm like, oh, did I make a mistake doing that? But uh, I don't know. I'm very, I, then I just say like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. like I know it's like maybe stupid to say I would have ever, and it's not that easy. And I think honestly, I think when I sound, I don't want to sound like I'm like I, I I am enlightened to say I whatever. I think saying ah whatever is not necessarily the best thing. But I just feel that sometimes you just go like, yeah, whatever. Yeah, they got, I'm like, they got that thing. I didn't get that thing. That's fine. Maybe I'll get it next time. You know? Maybe that's the thing you should have, uh, that should have been your form message to all the TikTok messages was just like, yeah, I kind of have this, ah, whatever thing. Uh, yeah, just be like, ah, whatever. And the same you used, like, you know, going to the times is like the, the thing for, for a journalist or go, as was, as compared to like SNLs is for like a writer performer. And it's like, sometimes you realize it's like, Oh, the New York Times, you know, they're not actually like they don't really give any freedom to their writers. Maybe they're not actually doing the best thing. Right. And, you know, SNL still good. SNL still funny. But it's like maybe SNL is not what the best thing is for you just because it's the top. It's like I work at a small publication, but it's probably one of the few publications where I can have like a decent salary make writing, you know, leftist screeds about evil billionaires. Like, mm-hmm. and that's what I want to do. I don't, don't want to write for the New York Times. And I have one of the only jobs where I can do what I do that and have like a level of freedom. If I were for the New York Times, I would have no freedom. I would, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, it, and and it's like you'd have that prestige and you could say you worked for the New York Times. Um, just like if you went to SNL, it's like you could have a genius sketch and Lauren doesn't like it. And it's like, that's just garbage that you can't, you probably, I don't know how, you know, rights work. You probably can't ever use that again. You know what I mean? Because you wrote it on the clock or whatever. Um, I mean, you can get away with it, but. It's like, yeah, why are we saying that? Like, yeah, I guess it's about institutional acceptance, you know, like uh, it's when you're published or something, you have this institutional acceptance. It's why we think of a, you know, a a self-published book is not a real book. There's plenty of excellent self-published books. Um, Like look look at like Confederacy of Dunces or something like that, where that didn't. um, Yeah, I don't know. That's a very specific story that not to get into at the very end of something. Yeah, um, no. Do you have an unwritten rule for how you live or how you think the world works that mm-hmm. is pr- you're pretty sure is probably only in your head? Yeah, um, I feel like I have a lot of little funny ones to put them all into one kind of grander thing. It's I, I, I too almost pathologically don't like inconveniencing people to a degree where it's like I would never ask someone for like a ride to the airport. That's crazy to me. I would never ask for that. I'll always you know, struggle and find my way back. Or um, if I like order food, I'll make sure I never make the guy wait at all. And if, but to the degree where I'm tra- treating that guy with kindness, but I'm with, I'm with, with them, if I'm like with a friend who maybe it's, you know, their apartment and they're taking too long to be able to get up, like, dude, go get it. And I'll have that frustration, which is not showing kindness to my friend while showing kindness to this other person. And it's to a degree where it's like, Oh, people probably would be happy to do me favors. People probably wouldn't be that annoyed. The guy probably wouldn't be that annoyed if he had to wait 10 seconds. Like, I know time is money for them, but oh, that's a second he gets to take a second and breathe and check his phone. You know what I mean? Um, but I always, you know, really 
try not try to never do that or like i'll feel terrible if i take too long to swipe i guess this is over now swipe into the subway because i feel like i'm blocking somebody but just try to never be an inconvenience and never be a burden um almost (laughs) almost too much yeah yeah is there do you have the feeling you're trying to avoid in people like if someone asks you for a ride to the airport would you feel the thing you're trying to avoid by not asking people? I guess it really depends. Like I'd love to offer, but like if someone asks me for like a crazy annoying favor, like a, like I think a lot of favors are out of pocket. Like, like a, like if an acquaintance asks you like, Hey, I have COVID. Can you like go run and get some groceries for me? I'd be like, well, you could, there's companies that will do that for you for a couple bucks. Like, no, absolutely not. <laughs> but if it's something that they absolutely couldn't do. Yeah, sure. I'd consider it, you know, like, yeah, like I would, I don't think I'd feel that put out. Okay. Because I heard, I don't know, I forget what the word for it was, but there was some, I heard a description like a year or so ago about like types of people when it comes to asking those permissions for things Mm -hmm. that where it's like the type of person who automatic, like you're describing automatically assumes a no and only will ask if they're almost positive that they'll get a yes Mm -hmm. versus the type of person who's just asking because you might as well ask. Yes. And when those two people, like if I'm the might as well ask guy and I'm like, hey, Sean, I know we uh, we met once, but I'm actually I, I'm going to New York. I'm wondering, do you have a couch that I could stand? I figure it might. And you're like, what? I met this guy on Zoom one fucking time. Right. You know, that's like a mismatch when it turns out if you just said no to me, I would be like, yeah, OK, no problem. Sure, you yeah. know, I asked five other yeah. people or something. I've actually heard this before. And that's like that's why why. So some people, yeah, we'll just ask without. And it's, they're not offended if you say no, right. but, uh, if you ask if when you mismatch the people, yeah, exactly. It's like, you'll assume you have to say yes, because this person is asking that way. Um, and I've definitely come into, you know, minor conflict with people like that before until I heard about the differences. And then I try to, now I don't care as much ever since I heard that. Yeah. Fact. Yeah. 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 But it sounds um, like yeah, it think, still yeah. doesn't free you to ask more. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, no, it still doesn't free me to ask more because, like, yeah, I think it's a matter of if that changed how I feel when I'm asked, but it didn't change how 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 I ask. Right, right. Because even yeah. though the the hell you described is being perceived, you yeah. you are willing to allow being perceived to rule as much of your day to day life as as it can. Very true. Yeah, because because I let it rule it. Yeah. That is the show. Thank you so much for listening. Enjoy your week. I hope you know we're heading into holiday season. Shit's shit's crazy. Is it crazy at work for you? I don't know. the The archives are there for you. Take a break if you need to. And. Yeah, check out Sean's links in the show notes. Check out my links. Become a patron at patreon.com slash Dave Marr. And until next week, remember, you are a mist. Miracles. Miracles. You can do them. Have faith. You are human. Only human. And human beings, they do miracles.